0: Um, uh, for reasons that I will talk about next, uh, next Sunday morning, um, uh, we find ourselves in the position of needing to fill, uh, to fill one of our elder, uh, positions. Uh, Johnny McKenzie is, is stepping down from, uh, from his position as an elder here, um, uh. And, uh, and our congregational, our, our way of doing this is that our elders appoint the next elder and then the congregation ratifies that appointment. It's a ratification process. There's no politics involved in this. Um, so, uh, so after, after talking uh, amongst the elders and seeking the Lord together um, and, uh, and talking to a number of people, the, the person that we've decided to invite to join our elder team is Trevor Landry. And he has agreed to join as one of our elders. And so two weeks from today, we will be uh, ratifying his, his eldership. Um, the, these two weeks, uh, in, well, one, one reason for two weeks is our constitution and bylaws says we have to have two weeks worth of announcements about this. But the more important and more biblical reason is that the congregation has an opportunity to uh, to enter into a conversation with the elders. If there are thoughts, if there are questions, if there are concerns, you're more than welcome to speak with one of us about them. Um, but uh, but we hold Trevor in high esteem, and uh, and are looking forward to him joining the elder team. So uh, so he will be uh, he will be. Uh, voted on for ratification two weeks from today. Again, right after the morning service will be that meeting. Um, if, you're, if you're a member, you're, you're able to vote, whether you're a member or not, you're welcome to stay and participate in that, uh, in that congregational meeting. The last announcement that I'll make um, for today is that our, our summer small groups meet once again tonight. We just crossed the halfway point we had five. We've had five small group meetings. We have five left this month, so uh, please join us in that. This morning uh, or this this uh, this evening, we we are going to be focusing on the fruit of the spirit. That in some translations is gentleness, in other translations it's kindness, and so we're going to be looking at at that fruit of the spirit as we focus this summer on the fruit of the spirit in our small group meetings. So if you have a question about where those meetings uh, are held, uh, let me just look around. Alex and Whitney, Alex, would you raise your hand? One one meets there, Um, the Davises, one meets there, and Chris, one meets over there at the Patterson's home. So you saw those three hands. If you're interested in attending and want some directions, uh, we have kind of, the Davises have the Carlisle area, the Pattersons are here at Dillsburg, and uh, the Kaufmans are aimed more toward that Mechanicsburg, Camp Hill area. So, if you're in one of those areas and and uh, you would like to join us in our small groups tonight, we'd love to have you. Uh, see one of them; they can give you some directions. We meet at six o'clock, six o'clock on Sunday evenings. Please make sure that you get a bulletin and that you um, that you have it with you throughout the week. And do be, uh, as, as Brother Matt already mentioned, do be looking out for the uh, the email that comes. We send out an email once a week from the church with with announcements on occasion, uh, a prayer request. And, uh, and in this case, there's an opportunity for the men to respond and indicate their attendance at the next uh, men's breakfast. So <clears throat> let's turn our attention to scripture this morning in every once in a while i i get this feeling that i'm being repetitive maybe it's lots of years of ministry that you feel like you repeat certain things maybe it's something else maybe i'm not at all maybe it's just just my feeling about things but um but I want to look at something together this morning that, that I believe uh, needs to be one of the main marks of our congregation. If, if, if you want to know um, what we're about, what we should be about, this is one of those messages that communicates to us, reminds us what we should be about, what we should be committed to being about. So uh, that's, the, that's the purpose of this morning, is to remind us of, of what it is that we're supposed to be about as a congregation. And it just so happens that the title of the message is, is What's That About? Because it's, it's an encounter with Jesus that's a rather curious one. We've been in a series of messages dealing with people who met Jesus, people who had an encounter with Jesus. And this particular encounter is one of those that makes you say, hmm, it's one of those things that you read it and you go, it's just we- It's just kind of weird, it's just, it's just not something that there's a whole lot of precedent for in Scripture, and you just kind of think to yourself, What's going on there? What is that about? So the encounter I want to look at this morning is is one of those things that is strange, makes one ask this question, what's that about? The encounter is found in John chapter 5, and I'd like to ask you to turn to John chapter 5. We're going to read together verses 1 through 9. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. After these things there was a feast of the Jews. Then Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down, certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water whoever then first after the stirring up of the water stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted and a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness when Jesus saw him lying there he and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition he said to him do you wish to get well the sick man answered him sir I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. What is going on in this encounter? So I I. I'm going to ask us, as we look at this text, to look at it in three parts. And each time we look at a part of this text, I'm going to ask you then to take a step back with me and and look beyond the details of the text and ask yourself, what's the point that's being made here? What's the main point? So every time you hear me say, let's take a step back, I'm asking us to, to ask ourselves the question, what's the point? What's the significance of what's going on here? There are three, I believe, very important truths that when we take a step back from the text, when we look at the big picture of the text, we're left with. And I think it's appropriate to say that that this text drives us toward what is supposed to be the central mission of the church, quite possibly of the entire church, but certainly of our church as a fellowship. It's key to understanding why we exist as a body, and please hear this, I think that this thing, this key, is, is probably going to be the, the central issue of our day, that going forward in time, this, is, this might be the thing that, that the world starts asking for and that we as the church are going to have an opportunity to offer and to provide. So let's look at this text this morning in three ways. I want to begin with what I'll call a strange situation. A strange situation. So the question arises when you read this text, what in the world is going on in verses 3 and 4? Right? What's going on in verses 3 and 4? How many of you, toward the end of verse 3, have a parenthesis in your text. You got a parenthesis there? There's this insertion, this explanation. There's this pool called Bethesda. And, and people gather at this pool. It's a, it's a group of people that are described in verse 3 as people who are sick, blind, lame, and withered people who are si- who are who are sick blind lame and withered and they all gather at this pool and then the parentheses is inserted to explain to us why all of these people are gathered at the pool what is this about well it's about the angel that is in the pool or at least that's the way it's described here the angel in the pool so so the idea that we just read is quite simple. That every once in a while, without, without warning, without advertisement, nobody knows when's it's gonna ha- when it's going to happen, an angel descends. And every once in a while, this angel descends, the word that is used, the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons, into the pool. And, and when he enters the pool... He stirs the water, and the first person that gets in gets healed. First one in gets healed. Now, if you use your imagination even a little bit, there's all kinds of ideas that suggest themselves. One idea that suggests itself is, it's kind of strange for there to be this kind of, Competition for a healing, right? First man in gets healed. I mean, you can imagine the chaos that ensues when the angel descends, right? The water gets stirred up, and all of a sudden you got a general melee. People, getting, people diving in and, and, and trying to be the first one in the water in order to get healed. Um. Uh, I don't know how attuned you've been to the Olympics at all, but in human terms, sometimes it's close enough that we need instant replays. I can picture two people diving in at roughly the same moment, and, and one person going in thinking to themselves, I think I've got this one. And then they come up out of the water and they're just as sick as they ever were, and somebody else is healed. And that and, and the thought of, wait a second, how did they get in before me? Right? The the, the the sense that there must have been of of how can I be the first one to get in? I think of of what it must have been like for people to think, you know, it's been a couple weeks since the angel appeared. Maybe I ought to get up really in the early in the morning so that I can get the closest seat possible to the edge of the pool because this would be about the time when we would expect to see this happening. problem is this. You know, in the Old Testament, when, when, when we have a description of how God led his people and there was this pillar of, of uh, fire by night and the cloud by day It tells us that sometimes the cloud would move every day, and then sometimes it'd stay for a year. And if you use that as a barometer, what you're left with is people having no idea when the water's going to be stirred. There might be three in a row, and then there might be a year before the water ever gets stirred again. If you take the text exactly the way it is, it presents an enormous number of questions. And you're left thinking to yourself, what in the world is going on in this text? God, what is going on in this text? Well, here's some considerations for you to think about. The first one is, it's possible that what this text is about is a literal healing angel in the pool. I mean, I guess it's possible that this could literally be exactly what happened. Every once in a while, an angel jumps in the pool... Start stirring up the water, first one in gets healed. That's possible. I don't know. There's no precedent for it in Scripture. You'd have to admit that this is highly irregular, right? Highly irregular. By the way, here's another question. Why Bethesda? Why is there not a pool in every town? Why is there only one pool in one place where an angel goes, right? You start thinking to yourself, okay, I... I'm having a hard time thinking about this as as literal. It's it's challenging to think of it that way. Here's some things we, we do know. It's possible that it's literal and it's meant to be taken that way. We can't rule that out. But there's other possibilities. The fact that this is a parenthetical statement is certain. But the fact that it belongs here is uncertain. In other words, if you're looking at, at what is referred to as textual criticism, what you'll find out is that most of the ancient texts do not include this in the original language. This half of verse 3 and the rest of verse 4 are not included in most of the ancient texts. So there's a lot of questions about, about whether or not it should be there. Now, let me just pause and say this right up front, okay? You're going to see in a second, it's okay for it to be there, all right? It's not an error in scripture. It's okay for it to be there. There's a reason why it's there. The question is, was it written by the original author of the Gospel of John? And there seems to be a fair amount of evidence that it probably wasn't that it was probably an addition sometime later on. And there's a reason for that that we'll get to in a moment. But there's a legitimate question. It's probably not part of the original text. And this is just one of those things that I think every once in a while is just helpful to, uh, for us to acknowledge right up front. It's, it's helpful for us to say, hey, we're taking honest looks at Scripture here. It's probably not part of the original text. The third thing is to note this, that... that that the way to refer to this parenthetical statement is that it's a gloss, it's a gloss, that is, it's something that was added later on as an explanation for verse 7. Okay? So imagine imagine verses 3 and 4, that half of verse 3 and 4 is not there. And let's say you're not a resident of Bethesda. You don't know anything about Bethesda. And you're reading this text, and you come to verse 7. And verse 7 says this, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. If you read that, without the explanation of verses 3 and 4, you'd have no idea what's going on. You'd have no idea what's going on. And so what seems to be the case is that the writer of the Gospel of John, was writing to an audience that was familiar with the Pool of Bethesda, and that later on people became aware that, that as the book circulated, many of the readers had no idea what was going on at the Pool of Bethesda. And so someone took it upon themselves to, to add this in as an explanation, to help to help people who weren't familiar with the situation to know what was going on in Bethesda that would, have, that would make sense of verse 7. Okay? That seems to be what's taking place here. Now, here's, here's the last two things that I think are important for us to recognize about this text. There's two possibilities. If this is not a literal healing angel in the pool there was this this ancient tendency to explain things that they did not have an explanation for, to explain them supernaturally or mystically. The gods did it. The gods did it. So it's very possible that what we have in the pool of Bethesda is, is is a pool that may have had some healing properties. Maybe there was something in the water that made it good for some people. And because that pool had done something good for some people, a legend developed around the pool. A legend that it had healing power. It's also quite possible that there was an artisan kind of thing going on there, an underground kind of spring where every once in a while water would get trapped, or, or uh, 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 air would get trapped, come bubbling up to the surface, and that part of the mystique of the place was when the, when, the, when the water bubbles, that's when its healing properties are the greatest. And it would have been very much in keeping with ancient thinking to say, well, it's God putting an angel in the pool. So, so when the water bubbles, jump in. First one in gets healed. It would have been it would have been a, a story. It would have been a story that might have had some basis in truth that took on a life of its own and became a popular spot for everybody that was sick to come get healed. Now, I don't know if doctors do this anymore. How many of you have read books back way back in the day that people would get a certain disease? Um, I don't even know remember. Um, I feel like one might have been rheumatism. And they'd tell you, whatever you do, don't keep living where you're living. Go, where would they tell you? Go go to Arizona. <laughs> where the air is warm and dry, it'll be better for you there. Right? How I many of you that's possible? How I many you are vaguely aware of there being pools of water that people believe have certain healing qualities about them? right? Maybe, maybe, maybe there's some water that's good for you to soak in. Let's say it's got certain rich mineral qualities that make it healthy to bathe in. Well, you can see how a story, how a belief would evolve around such a place. Let me pause and take this one step further. My brothers and sisters, we're talking about times when people did not have the kind of resources that you and I have today. And people lived desperate. People lived desperate. If there was chance for healing anywhere, people would go find healing there was a chance. So you've got, this, you've got this, this pool of water that may or may not have had healing properties. Let's give it the benefit of the doubt. Let's say there was something about the water that was good for some conditions and somebody or, or a few somebodies had, had received help in this pool. Well, they'd start chatting it up. and Hey, I had that and this pool of water really helped me and and all of a sudden you get a story going, and, you, and a legend develops and a myth surrounds it, and a mystique surrounds it, and desperate people start looking to that place as a place of healing. And the explanation is, every once in a while, because it doesn't happen for everybody, and it doesn't happen all the time. Every once in a while, an angel of the Lord descends and stirs the waters, and when that happens, first Man In gets healed. First one in gets healed. Another possibility is the water simply had no value at all and it was a story. (laughs) It's possible that the water had no value at all and it was just desperate people clutching at straws. Right? The point is this. It may be literally true that for some reason This place got visited by an angel on occasion and people got healed. But there's other possibilities as well. This is where I say, having looked at the angel in the pool for a minute, let's take our step back, okay? Our step back is simply this. Human beings need hope. We're desperate for hope, right? We need somebody and something to offer us hope. This is a story that may simply remind us of how desperate people are looking for something that gives them hope in their lives. And please hear this. Please hear this. For so many reasons, very few people are immune to this. There are people who have a personality that inclines them to, to live with certain fears. And they, and they need something in their lives that provides them with a sense of security and a sense of hope and a sense of wellness for the future. There, there are people who just desperately are, are clinging to certain things. And, and, and please hear this. We have well, let me just tell you one. I, I, asked, I asked Janet about this a couple weeks ago. Janet has her master's in nutrition. Is that right? Yeah, her master's in nutrition. So I had been talking to my brother who's an avid runner. He's a long-distance runner, a, a marathon-type runner. And, and he says to me... Um, we were out playing some soccer with the last time he was up to visit, and he hands me a bottle of water, and he says, here, take a drink. Uh, and I'm looking at this bottle of water, and on the water it says pH 9.5. And he looks at me and he says, he says you know that, that normal water does not hydrate you almost at all, right? And Janet asked a logical question somehow people have been surviving on natural water for a very long time. and No one's dehydrated to death. I don't understand this, right? But, but he says, you know, in the running community, we, 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 there's a lot of research that's been done, and, and you got to get the pH uh, up, up above 9. When you start getting up there, it really has hydrating properties. This is how desperate people are to find the thing that gives them the edge or that will keep them going when they have to run long enough and far enough. And it's a great illustration for life, isn't it? People cling to all sorts of stuff. All sorts of stuff. That, that listen, whether or not it has a benefit, it's, it's what, If nothing else, well, we all recognize that there have been studies done on the placebo effect. Just giving somebody hope is good for them. Just giving somebody hope is good for them. It's healthy for them to have a reason to expect to get better. That has health benefits in and of itself, right? Why? Because there's something about human beings that desperately needs a reason to believe, a reason to cling to hope. We're living in a world, please hear this, that is looking for hope in all the wrong places. I want to say this as gently as I can, because this is a serious issue that that a certain probably small, but a certain percentage of the population deals with. And however small the percentage of the population is that actually deals with this, the media and the culture in which we live seems absolutely unwilling to do anything other than make it sound like it's happening to almost everybody. Gender confusion is is one of the issues of the day. It's one of the issues of the day. And let's just say that there's a certain percentage of people for whom that is a legitimate problem. It's a legitimate issue. Listen to this. As believers, our hearts should break for someone that is struggling in such a profound area of life. That would not be easy to deal with. But please hear this just because we have the technology to reassign people doesn't mean that's the hope they need. It doesn't mean that that's where our hope should be placed because if we can just reassign their gender, that will clear up the problems. That will clear up the struggles. Thus far, what we know is statistically, it doesn't accomplish that. What we have is people who are desperate for hope and they're, and they're willing to grasp at straws to find hope. They're willing to grasp at straws to find a solution. It's a scientific version of an angel in the water. Jump in. We can, we can make you well. You know, when I was thinking about this, the scripture that came to mind was Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, in which God tells his people, there's a couple things you've done wrong. You have forsaken me, the living God, is one. The thing you've done is you have gone and you have dug up cisterns that don't hold water. The idea is you've tried to find solutions that can't really help you. If you haven't found your help in me, you've turned to other things that can't actually help you. We have, we have a crisis in our culture that, that in our desperate run of God, we are trying to solve human problems that can't be solved apart from Him. And so we're digging up cisterns that can't hold water. They can't hold water. The second part of this story is what I'll call a strange question. In John chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, do you want to get well? What in the world kind of question is that? You're talking to a man who's been sick for I don't know how many years. He's been there forever and a day. He can't get to the water first. He's been sick for however long and Jesus looks at him and says, do you want to get well? Right? Forgive me. I know this is not proper pulpit etiquette, but the thing that the, says, the, the, I don't even know if people say this anymore, but the thing from youth that, that would have been said would have been something like, duh. <laughs> right? Do you want to get well? well? Duh. What kind of question is that? Of course I want to get well. Right? That's what it seems like. Seems like a crazy question to ask. You have a man with an undefined ailment. We're not told exactly what it is, but evidently his ailment made mobility a problem for him. So when the waters get stirred, he's not likely to be the first man in. Why would Jesus ask such an apparently obvious or even ridiculous question? Do you want to get well? All right, let's take the step back. Let's take the step back. When you take the step back, Jesus' question at least suggests this to us. Hang in with me just for a second on this one. The fact of the matter is, it's a legitimate question to ask because not everybody wants to get well. Can I ask how many of you have noticed that? You know how many people wish they had a good marriage but they refuse to change to have it? They'd love a good marriage so long as it meant somebody else pays the price for it. Me looking at myself? Me making a sacrifice? Right? The question, do you want to get well? Is a legitimate question to ask. Because in the end, not everybody actually does. It's a hard reality to face. In fact, one of the most difficult things to do is to come up against a person who says they want help, but no matter what you say, no matter what you do, they disregard everything that's being said anyways. And after a certain amount of time, you're left kind of scratching your head asking yourself the question, I don't know if you really want help. because you don't seem to receive anything that's being offered. It's a strange situation. Intention is not to be accusatory about this. But here's just parts of life. You know, some people fall into a trap of self-pity where it just feels good to feel sorry for yourself. And they just don't want to get out. It's just easier to feel sorry, to have something that we can feel sorry for ourselves about. Sometimes, sometimes self-pity is like taking a nice warm bath. You just soak in your self-pity. It seems odd. Some just become comfortable there. You know, it's an odd sort of thing, but there, there, is, this, there is this situation that sometimes develop, develops when, where no matter how abusive a relationship is, a person is so accustomed to being in that relationship that it becomes a sort of security blanket, and the abuse is the price they pay to avoid the scary possibility of getting out. And stepping aside is too scary. So I'll just keep taking the beating. It's a beating. It's a question of which situation is more comfortable. Which one is more comfortable? Some don't want the work or the effort. Please hear this. The question Jesus asked, do you want to get well? In, in most things in life, getting well is not A simple proposition it takes a certain amount of energy a certain amount of effort there are some that seem to just not want the work or the effort that's involved and then there's this some people don't want to get well because their particular sickness is related to a particular sin that they love and the love of that sin is too great the love of that sin is too great to be willing to do what it takes to get well. Why, why am I saying this? Please hear me, and, and I, I hope you can know that my intention is not to pick people apart or to find fault with people. That's not the intention. We do need to recognize this. I added some are simply set in their ways. It's just the way they've always done it. It's hard to get them out of it. The point of it is this. You can't make people want to be well. And and please let me take that one step further. You can't fix someone who doesn't want to be fixed. I think this is a common syndrome for people who are not in ministry. They stand in ministry thinking, if I could just get an opportunity to talk to them, I'll be able to talk to them in a way that will convince them that this would be better than this. And then you get a couple years in and you realize there's no amount of talking and there's no amount of eloquence that can convince a person to do what they don't want to do. This is one of those things that I've seen in marriages is that sometimes spouses fall into the trap of thinking, if I just say it one more time in a different way, my spouse will get it and they will change. And you got to realize that there comes a point in time when you just got to let it go. (laughs) Because you can't. You can't. There's things you can't change. There are situations you can't change. If people are going to get well, they want to get well? And so Jesus stands before the man and says, do you want to get well? It's interesting because if you read the commentators about this, the commentators will say things like this. Um, sometimes... People in that culture, we don't. uh, I actually see this more often now than I used to. Um, Periodically, driving around in this area, I'll see somebody with a cardboard sign that'll be asking for money. Overseas, you see everywhere, people are everywhere begging for money. Many of which don't ask for, don't don't hold up a sign. They just come with their hand out. They're just asking. They're just asking for money, right? Commentators say that, that, that in certain cultures, in places and times, that becomes so much a part of people's lives that that when I start thinking about the alternative, if I wasn't in the position to beg I'd have to go to work, that for some it just becomes easier to stay in a life of. I remember remember driving down Broadway in New York City, there was a guy that sat in the same place at the same time every single day. He had a sign that was the most honest sign in all of New York City. It said, spare change for more beer. I remember standing on that corner watching people. People would walk by, they'd see the sign, and they'd start cracking up, and they'd go... It's an honest one, and they just throw him money. They'd throw him money. It's amazing. Well, why do anything else? If literally, if that, cardboard bo- if that cardboard sign is what your life's about and someone will just give you money to, to keep that's what your life's about, then hey, right? You can't make somebody change that gets comfortable in that place and doesn't want to change. Here's the the last point. There's a very clear conclusion to this story. The man says to Jesus, yes, I want to be made well. And Jesus looks at him and says, take up your pallet and walk. Go. I'm healing you. Now, I touched on, subject of divine healing a few weeks ago. I have a love-hate relationship with the doctrine of healing. I love it because it's in Scripture. It's part of Scripture. I hate it because I ask questions of God when certain people that I think ought to be healed aren't healed. And that, that, that gets to me. When somebody that I look at that I know and they're serving Jesus. And for all the world, it looks to me like they've got a fruitful life ahead of them. And they're, and they're wasting away because of some disease. And, and people are praying for them. And God doesn't heal them. I've got questions. I've got questions. And they're not happy questions. And guess what? What? If we can't talk like that openly in church, we got a problem. Because God's not in heaven looking to strike us dead. He understands it's an issue. It's tough to sort through those things. But please hear this. What we can't give up is this truth that I believe Scripture is affirming to us from beginning to end. And that is simply this, in a world full of sin that is fallen and broken and a mess and people hurt and people get sick and people, get, and people die, God stepped into it through his son Jesus Christ to communicate the idea that he wants to be the solution to this problem. In other words, you could say it like this. Stealing, killing, and destroying is on Satan's side of the ledger. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly is on God's side of the ledger. God wants wholeness for his people. Can I tell you that the grand story of the whole thing is this? That which was ruined by sin will be made whole by the sanctifying work of God in the end. You know what he's doing? He's healing it all. He's healing it all. I just don't understand why it doesn't happen sooner in certain circumstances. Hear this. God is a God who has a vested interest in healing. God is a God who has a vested interest in healing, in putting things back together again. You see the clear conclusion is God is willing to heal. It's kind of His story. Listen to this. Apply it as many ways as you want. You're struggling in a relationship. It would be God's will to heal it. That would be God's will. He would want it healed. It's broken. It's hurting. You're hurting Him. He's hurting you. God wants to heal it. He wants to heal it. He wants to take that which Satan wants to destroy, and he wants to put it back together again. There are so many ways. You look at a person whose life is destroyed, is being destroyed by addiction, I will tell you there's a God who wants to set them free. I would love to be able to sit here and tell you, just gets saved. Every addict that gets saved instantaneously gets delivered. Some do, but not all do. And the honest truth is, I've got no idea why. But you know what? That's part of the story, isn't it? The text tells us that it's a pool that's surrounded by people who are sick and blind and lame and paralyzed, and Jesus picks out one. I mean, he could have stood at the edge of the pool and just gone like this. And as his hand waved, every single person in the scope of his hand would have been healed. But for some reason in the story, he walks up to one. and says, do you want to be healed? And the man says, yes, I've got questions. But what I know is that God wants to put back together what sin has broken. That God has a vested interest in word like restoration and reconciliation and healing. That this is on God's side of the ledger and he's about it. He's about it. I don't understand. I don't have full explanations for some things. I will tell you this. I will tell you that if you're here this morning and you are struggling with some sin in your life that feels overwhelming, God wants to set you free from it. I'd like to tell you that every single time it's instantaneous. But I will tell you this. I will tell you 100% on the authority of God's word. Sin being an affront to God, you can know for certain that it will always be God's will for God to help you overcome that sin in your life. He doesn't want you to be trapped by it. 100% He wants to set you free. Physical healing, I'm not sure I can give you 100%. The healing of your soul And the relationship you have with God, 100%, he wants to heal it. And listen to this. There is no one that has ever come to Jesus that he ever cast out. You come to him, and he will receive you. You know why? Because that's 100% guaranteed in the atonement. He died for the forgiveness of your sins, and he wants to reconcile you to the Father. There's no ifs, ands, or or buts about it. All you have to do is ask, and it's done. Believe, and you will be saved. Period. End of story. No strings attached. The point in the step back is, while I have many questions, I can say that God is willing to heal. It's a demonstration of God's power. It displays His power. But the step back is this. Verse 14, we didn't read it, but let me read it now. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. Let me just tell you real quickly what Jesus was not teaching. Jesus was not teaching karma. If you do too many bad things, something bad will happen to you. That's not what Jesus was teaching here. You take a step back and you look at that verse, and here's what Jesus is intending to communicate. It's something like this. Sin is more dangerous to you than that physical ailment you had. Your body was healed, but don't keep living in sin because you could die completely healthy and go to hell. You see, the point of the story is this, that Jesus looks at a man whose body he has healed and says, there's a more important healing that you need. And that's the one I want most for you. You see, because because the Lord Jesus, let's take the word healing out and let's use a different word. What he wants for us is wholeness. What he wants for us is wholeness. He wants to reconcile us to the Father. Listen, so that we can sing to him, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. He's looking to build wholeness into us. Jesus' desire was to bring wholeness to this man. It had started with physical healing, but he wanted it above all to be spiritual healing. The man was well physically, but Jesus wanted him to be well spiritually, listen, morally, and therefore eternally before God. That's what Jesus wanted for him. And my brothers and sisters, this is where we close. I will probably refer to this scripture again a number of times over the next few weeks. I absolutely believe that it needs to be one of the theme verses of the modern day church. That one of the themes of our day is this. It comes from from 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. God was through Christ reconciling the world to himself and has committed unto us the work of reconciliation. We are living in a broken world that needs healing. It needs to be reconciled to God. It needs to be reconciled. And above all else, you and I need to be available before God as agents of reconciliation in this world. There are more important things than posting every thought and every opinion on Facebook. The gospel of reconciliation is what drives the church. It's the gospel of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. Why? Because people are broken and their lives are tormented. And listen to this. People are living in every way We live in financially unstable days. Questions about the future, politically unstable days. We live in in gender unstable days, in in morally unstable days. The question becomes, where is there any solid ground left to build your life? And the answer of the church is be reconciled to God. On Christ, the solid rock we stand. That's That's the work of the church. And please hear this, yes, that means evangelism, but my brothers and sisters, it means way more than that. It means way more than that. Yes, that's significant. But in this day and age, the call to us, I believe, is that you and I would be a people that make ourselves available, please hear this, because the hurts and the brokenness that people have become the doorway to the gospel door to the gospel. But they need to know how much you care about their lives. That you actually care about their marriages. They're not a project to to, to just get, but you care about them as a person. And by the way, last last thing to close with here is this. Listen, how many of you are 100% well? How many of you thank God you don't have to be 100% well to help other people get well? Amen? But how many of you know that it helps to have walked the wellness road a little bit? Can Can I urge you, my brothers and sisters, please, please don't... Please don't go soft on this. Please be willing to say to yourself, God... What is it that would be needed in my life for me to grow in wholeness before you so that increasingly my life becomes available to others that have need, that they can look at and say, what's the reason for the hope that is in you? They need to see something in us. They need to see something in us. So we can reach out a hand and minister to people around us. I, um, I don't know if you're in the same position, but sometimes one of, one of my biggest struggles in prayer lately has been to Be willing to pray for situations that I've already prayed for for so long. That's been a struggle for me lately. I've got some situations that I'm I'm having a hard time keeping praying out because I just step back sometimes. I go, God, how long have I prayed about this? And it's not getting any better. It's not getting any better. Let us hold fast. I'm preaching to myself now, if you can't tell. Let us hold fast to a God who delights to reconcile. There are some marriages that I've been praying for for so long. God, God, would you step into this situation? Would you heal this situation? Let us be agents of reconciliation. Willing to pay the price on our knees in prayer. Willing to be whole ourselves so that we can reach out to people around us and offer them the hope that we have received in Christ. Amen? I'd like to ask you to bow with me. We're going to close in a moment of prayer. And I'm going to ask if our musicians would come and um, they would just play Play softly that song we sang earlier, Jesus, thank you. By your perfect sacrifice, I've been drawn near. It's a statement of healing and reconciliation. Your enemy, you've made your friend, pouring out the riches of your glorious grace. Those kinds of words Communicate to us the heart of the gospel. Don't let your heart become cynical. Let's not allow ourselves to be filled with despair. Let us be carriers of the gospel, purveyors of hope in our world. Looking for people that we can ask Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Sometimes it'll be the unbeliever you need to share the gospel with, but sometimes it's going to be the believer that needs to be reconciled to God in some area. Do you want to be healed? I'm going to ask you to bow. and I'm going to ask you to pray two ways before we close. One, you might look at yourself or your family and say, God, here's my greatest need for healing right now. Lord, would you step into my life in this area? might be a sin, it might be a personality trait that is hurtful. You just say, God, I need some help with this. Please come and help me right now. Come and help me right now. Would you take that for a moment and make that your prayer? And then second, I have zero doubt that all of us have people that we know of whose situations are desperate, that just need healing in some way. I'm going to ask you to raise them up before the Lord, lift them up, intercede for them for a few moments. Just take three or four minutes and let's pray before we close together.